Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Today, from Boris to Brussels and the backstop, this week we take a deep dive into Brexit Britain with Roz Taylor of the Romaniacs pod. And don't mention the war. Are there really lessons from history about the rise of China? It's all frying up on today's Democracy Sausage. Hello there and welcome to Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny. And of course, I'm joined today, as always, by my colleague, Dr. Maria Tafliger from the School of Politics and International Relations here at the Australian National University. Democracy Sausage, of course, is a joint production of the ANU and the Crawford School of Public Policy. And that's where we come to you each week at this time. It's an interesting show we have for you today because we're going to talk a little bit about uh, domestic politics as we always do, that being the main focus. But after the break, a bit later in the in the, uh, in the the pod, we're going to talk to um, – or our very own Martin Pierce has been in, in the UK and is going to talk to Roz Taylor from the Romaniacs podcast, a very influential podcast in the UK, which uh, focuses on the debacle or the disaster, however you want to describe it, that is Brexit and all of the issues that are associated with that. And of course, we've seen the recent election of Boris Johnson, which is, uh, you know, has it changed things or has it made them just a whole lot worse? Has it just sort of entrenched the intractable problems that that country is facing. So we'll look at all of that uh, a bit later in the program. But Maria, it's good to uh, have you here again, of course. Um, uh, been a bit going on in, in Australian politics, uh, particularly interest from the, uh, the uh, an op-ed that was written by Andrew Hastie, the member for Canning, and of course the uh, chair of the the Parliamentary Joint Committee on uh, Intelligence and Security, which is really one of the most senior probably is the most senior committee of the parliament and he's had a, f- a few things to say about China and it's really uh, um, brought some mixed reactions from his colleagues. Yeah, he's definitely ruffled some fe- uh, some feathers. Also, hello, dear listeners. Um, so so Andrew Hastie on Thursday in the, in the nine newspapers uh, basically wrote an op-ed that um, effectively argued that we need to have open eyes about what China is doing in our our region as it's sort of a, a sort of a new emerging power in the international rules based system and one that isn't um, inclined to accept uh, the current system as it is uh, a power that wants to sort of rewrite those rules and the reason why he got into a bit of hot water was because he invoked Godwin's law and used the um, Nazis the, the German Nazi regime uh, as as a sort of similar analogous example of what was going on yeah he did and I think that, that this has enabled a lot of people to criticize what he's had to say Um Personally, I'm not in that camp. I must say, I know I'm in the minority here, and I'm not. Wouldn't say that I'm someone who not lines up with, um, you know, um, Mr. Hasty on uh, on on all matters. I mean, he's obviously a uh, a very conservative figure and uh, associated with the Christian right of the Liberal Party. Um, 
But nonetheless, uh, I think uh, what he is saying ha- has resonated. And I think his comparison with uh, the point he was trying to make in the piece when he said that, uh, you know, he cited the example of, of France and the Maginot line of steel and concrete forts that were supposed to keep the Germans out. And of course, uh, the German. Uh, invading forces turned out to be a lot more mobile and simply went round the fence, as it were. And and he was sort of making the point that the world, uh, France as well, you know, France obviously, but but other powers as well, Britain, uh, there were very powerful voices in Britain uh, and in the US and other places that were essentially, had been for a long time, arguing an appeasement line or arguing that, uh, you know, that, that Germany's uh, intentions were, uh, you know, containable, uh, that uh, the situation was manageable. And then, of course, we know, uh, you know, Europe exploded. Now, you quite rightly point out, uh, Maria, about uh, Godwin's law, you know, the argument is that if you raise the Nazis, you raise Hitler, you've already lost the argument. That does seem to have played out here in a sense that people are just criticising that aspect of Hastie's argument. But I think, it's a bit silly, really, because you should be able to draw historical comparisons and you shouldn't have to have those comparisons match up in every single detail. I mean, yes, you can always say that, you know, China is not Germany and Xi Jinping is not Adolf Hitler and, you know, on and on it goes. You know, China doesn't pose any threat to Czechoslovakia or Poland, for example. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are lots of different differences, but the point he was trying to make is that if you have a power that is expanding and it's not expanding into the system in a way that is associated with reinforcing the rules, it's expanding into the system in a way that is uh, potentially going to destroy those rules, that it's not going to respect them. And we can see that with China in the South China Sea. We can see it uh, with um, – uh, you know the, uh, the its activities in the in the in the cyber sphere. Um, we can see it in its treatment of uh, you know minorities, you know human rights and so forth. There are a whole range of ways in which the international community should be worried about the way China is uh, is projecting itself and its rate of growth. So uh, that's really what Hasty is saying. I think that you know we can't just sort of tell ourselves this story that it's all going to be hunky-dory when uh, when potentially it won't. And Australia, of course, is, you know, right in the middle of this, you know, a very key partner of the US, but absolutely economically dependent on China. On China. On China. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, there's lots of things that I, I agree with you there, Mark. Um, like, I think it's a sort of silly um, thing to sort of pick apart an argument uh, because some of the uh, analogies deployed might be clumsy. Because I, I do agree with you that, that the broader point that Hastie is trying to make is one that is more sophisticated, that um, I think he's sort of trying to say that Australia really actually needs to think about um, what it intends to do about our strategic placement within the region, that we can't afford to just pretend that everything mm. will kind of go on as it is. And I do remember um, I read it somewhere, and I can't remember where, which is a bit unfortunate, but I remember reading a study that was like polling data from the Netherlands from the early 30s um, and then at the late 30s about um, – the um, the Nazi regime and people were more concerned about um, fascism in Germany in uh, the early 30s in the Netherlands than they were by 1939. Which sort of which the point the point I'm trying to make here is is that you know um, Hasty is making an argument about 
complacency, complacency in how we debate um, ideas and the way we kind of actually analyze the information that's coming to us. Um, and what I think has been really interesting is the reaction within the government, right, mm. uh, on two fronts. Like the first is that, you know, we've had lots of ministers basically slap hasty down as they would because, you know, they would have their own sort of secret processes that they, you know, seek to manage these relationships. They've got other uh, rods in the fire, you know, the budget and all of that. Um but what is kind of interesting is what Peter Dutton said, right? And he basically agreed with Hasty um, and effectively, you know, tacitly encouraged him to keep talking and um, sort of made the point that, um, yeah, you know, we should think about like what we say and what we do and what we think. But of course, um, you know, if we're going to make Nazi analogies or if we're going to make analogies about how we think and how our sort of security apparatus is set up, like... It's, you know, like I can't help but feel that the big elephant in the room is the slow um, uh, degradation of our democratic rights and freedoms, which is the flip side of this kind of conversation about worrying Mm. about, you know, the intellectual climate, what we're allowed to say and what we're not allowed to say at the moment. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, and the slow decline really of the United States in this process. You know, Indeed. If we're talking about the rise of China. We're talking about the commensurate, you know, the competition that China presents to the United States. We're talking about the contraction, in a sense, of the United States' global ambitions as we see this nativist uh, sort of insular uh, president, uh, you know, really withdraw the uh, the US from the very same system that it was the lodestar of, you know, the creator, really, and the, and the chief enforcer of the... Um, post-war rules-based order, we see the US sort of, you know, pulling out of that in in, in all kinds of ways, undermining trade and uh, climate uh, agreements and all kinds of things. So it's really an interesting um, dynamic that we see happening. And I think Hastie is actually, you know, speaking to a a kind of, I mean, the reaction to his piece kind of proves his point which is Indeed, that it's yeah. very difficult to talk about these things. Australia is so economically enmeshed with uh, with China now um, that we see the trade minister and the finance minister, uh, in the case of uh, Birmingham, Simon Birmingham and Matthias Cormann, respectively, um, you know, quite quite uh, strongly criticising Hasty for having said this, and I suppose you'd say, well, the finance minister is very interested in the books, and the trade minister is a, is an economic minister and very interested in trade with China, which is um, absolutely critical to his portfolio and critical to the, you know, to the economy at the moment, critical to the budget and so forth. So all of that sort of makes sense. Dutton, on the other hand. Uh, he's the Home Affairs Minister. He's more concerned about uh, national security. He's also very, very much the most conservative minister in in the government. And Hasty, being a key conservative from the West, I guess uh, you can see those sort of linkages there too. But it w- wasn't lost on me that Cor- uh, Corman, you know, as a as a native Belgian, you know, uh, was was so uh, t- you know <laughs> so dismissive of Hasty's analogy. I, I think it was uh, through Belgium that the Germans eventually, you know, came into France. But uh, you know, we'll leave that one. Um, nonetheless, yeah. as I say, the, uh, these issues are quite big issues and uh, it well, does really prove the point that it's very difficult. No, you, you do wonder whether Australia, because of its economic dependence on China, is is kind of self-censoring. Well, I think, I think it's a live debate. I mean, like last week we had um, 
the Crown Casino uh, uh, sort of scandal where, you know, visas were um, being sort of fast-tracked for Chinese businessmen. We got this ongoing debate mm. and on-running debate about the influence of China. Um, and, you know, on, on our university campuses, there's been, you know, effectively like poster wars between different, um, you know, pro-Chinese government and anti-Chinese government sort of supporters. Uh, so... This isn't um, a conversation that's going to go away anytime soon. And, um, I mean, I thought it was kind of interesting what Simon Birmingham said on Insiders yesterday where he sort of set up criterion for when people should comment on uh, foreign policy matters. Um, you're a long-time observer, Mark. I mean, what do you think is sort of um, driving Simon Birmingham's actions here? Do you think it's just damage control? Do you think it's something else? Well, it's a good question because I think what was fascinating about the response to Hastie's piece was that the most senior figures of the government, that being the Prime Minister, the Deputy Liberal Leader, who's also the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, both of those two were quite neutral in their response to Hastie. Um, Morrison, Scott Morrison said, for example, that uh, these things had been said before. And I think, you know, from a diplomatic point of view, the Chinese would have read that, that that was tacit support of Hastie's position, or at least it certainly wasn't a repudiation of it. That that repudiation came from others, as we've just mentioned. And one of those was probably the strongest of them, uh, most direct of them, was Simon Birmingham. And he, as you say, he set up this sort of test. Uh, he said that uh, backbenchers, when they're about to enter into foreign policy discussion, should ask themselves the question, is this helpful? You know, And should it really be said in public? Now, I, I mean, I, I think Birmingham's a very respectable minister, a very uh, solid performer, uh, a very moderate um, and civilised, uh, you know, uh, parliamentarian. Um, I was surprised a little bit by by his comments there because, uh, and he, this goes to your area of expertise a bit, Maria, in terms of you know the sort of politics, the small p politics inside the Liberal Party. It does seem to rather fly in the face of what is a core liberal tenet, which is that notion that uh, it is a liberal party, that it doesn't bind its members, particularly its backbench, uh, that if you're a liberal member of parliament, you are free to express your view. And uh, really, we had the executive telling a very senior backbencher, this is not your right to comment on this, this is not helpful, and you perhaps shouldn't be doing it. Well, if I if I could make one quick observation, um that is actually a pattern since this government was re-elected of the executive telling mm. backbenchers to please pipe down. Uh, and I guess it goes to the fact that there's Didn't not... seem to work very well for Malcolm Turnbull. They no, did. no, and, <laughs> and it's not really working very well for, for this government either. And it sort of goes to the fact that they there is a there is a vacuum where the government's policy agenda is. So we should probably expect a bit more of this for a little yeah, while longer. Well, you think that because the government has been elected in that you know, kind of come from nowhere uh, election uh, in July that uh, it, it um, yeah, the absence of any, you know, significant agenda is adding to this situation or adding to the likelihood that, uh, you know, things will emerge, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you just look at the Nats on the New Start stuff, mm. I mean, they've, the government has a, a very slim majority. The Nats hold key seats. Um, they can afford to flex their muscles. Uh, you know, I think it's just incentives. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point. Well, look, we'll come back. Uh, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back. And when we do, um, we'll uh, uh, listen to a, a very interesting interview that uh, Aaron Martin Pierce did with Ros Taylor from Romaniacs about the uh, worsening situation in Brexit. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. 
Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, and Maria Tafliger from the School of Politics and International Relations here at ANU. And it's my pleasure also to introduce uh, Martin Pierce, who's really the backbone of uh, the Democracy Sausage. Sausages don't really have bones, happily, but... Uh, <laughs> thank, Not thank, the good quality ones. Well, actually, who knows what's in the sausage? Perhaps it has bones <laughs> yeah, in there too. Yeah. What about gammon? Does it have, gammon have bones? <laughs> we'll, we'll come to that. Um, and uh, Martin's here because he's uh, done a uh, fantastic interview with uh, um, one of our, uh, I guess you'd call sister programs or a, a, a collegiate program in the UK. And I'll let you talk about that, Martin. Um, yeah, so why don't you do that now? Yeah, so we've got an interview with Roz Taylor. Roz is the managing editor of the London School of Economics Brexit blog, which I imagine has been very busy over the last couple of years. She's also a presenter on uh, the Romaniacs podcast, which is one of my favourites, and I know it's one of the favourites of uh, some of the listeners of the Democracy Sausage podcast, judging by the comments in our Facebook group. So Roz was very kind to spare me the time to have a chat about what is happening in Brexit and why it's important beyond the UK and EU. So why don't we have a listen to that now? Yeah, that sounds good. Ross Taylor, thank you for joining the Democracy Sausage podcast. It's a pleasure. Ross, let's start this off with talking about why this actually matters beyond the UK and the EU. We've talked on the podcast many times about Brexit. Um, what's your take on it? Why is it important beyond uh, the UK and EU borders? So there's the trade deals aspect, of course, but there's also more widely, I think there are lessons for Brexit and for the way that Brexit has been practiced for the whole world in terms of the ability, the way the way that public uh, opinion has been manipulated particularly through social media, but the way it's been possible for a particular clique, a rather extremist clique um, of politicians to seize control of the agenda and persuade, gradually persuade a large proportion of the public to follow them. Right, well, let's go. Let's let's try that again. <laughs> so we're barely a week into Boris Johnson's uh, prime ministership. And we've seen him be sort of booed almost everywhere he goes. How would you rate his first week? He's visited uh, all the constituent nations of the UK, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, of course, he's there already. And he's been throwing money and promises around with abandon. Um, it's been a spasm of uh, promises and particularly trying to focus, of course, what he really wants to focus on is life after Brexit and how much money he's going to spend on all the things that we care about that aren't Brexit. This is going to be very difficult because um, a no-deal Brexit, any Brexit is going to screw up our economy, but a no-deal Brexit extre- uh, very much. So where he's going to get this money from is very debatable, but he very much wants, he, he would rather be a prime minister without Brexit, to be honest, 
to be, despite all the things he says, he doesn't really care about Brexit. He would prefer not to have to deal with it. It's just unfortunate, as far as he's concerned, that he's come to power at a time when it he, it really has to be delivered, as he sees it. Who is the real Boris Johnson, though? Because we've seen him take some fairly socially moderate lines, and we've also seen him take a hard uh, EU hard line against the EU. What's there is no real Boris Johnson. There is no genuine uh, public service or zeal behind Boris Johnson. He is a man who wanted power, who has now gained power and wants to get uh, carry on pursuing it. But he has never had any distinctive political philosophy. And it is by accident uh, that he has come into power at a time when... Britain is in this crisis. He trims his sails to the wind. That is Boris Johnson. He is the ultimate populist in many ways in that respect. So how is he going to achieve what he wants to achieve here? Because the basic parliamentary arithmetic of it all hasn't changed. He is struggling. He cannot bring Parliament with him unless he can somehow persuade the people who have previously voted against uh, Theresa May's Brexit deal um, and who were very adamant that they would never change their minds um, to change their minds about that because he's not going to get a new deal out of the EU, certainly not anything of any substance whatsoever. So he really has to go for a general election if he wants to have the majority to drive Brexit through. The problem is really for him that he can only get a general election majority if he promises a no-deal Brexit, because we are now in a position where the Brexit party has been polling very strongly, um, around a quarter or more uh, of, of the votes and it did very well in the recent European elections and it it has promised a no-deal Brexit and therefore to neutralise the threat posed by the Brexit party, Boris Johnson has to promise no deal. Otherwise, the Brexit party will stand against him, split the vote and essentially... The part there will be multiple parties, and in our first past the post system in Britain, um, you have you will have the Conservative Party, the Brexit Party, the Liberal Democrats, Labour, the Greens, the SNP, the Scottish National Party, not to mention the Northern Irish parties as well. And the vote will just go all over the place, and it's quite possible that he could get power, but he equally not. When nobody knows what would happen in a general election at this stage, which is quite unusual in British history. What about the European? Union. I mean, he's sort of power promising a kind of can-do attitude of all about positivity and that will Mm. achieve a result. How are the EU going to respond to that? Will they also be swept up in uh, in his positivity? No, the EU dislikes Boris Johnson and has just uh, disliked him ever since he was a young journalist in Brussels in the 90s when he was making things up about things like, <laughs> shall I say sausages? I'm pretty sure it was sausages. It was certainly bananas. The bendy um, bananas. Bendy thing. bananas, yeah. Uh, and all kinds of things that were supposed to be uh, affecting our national pride and sovereignty. And it has disliked him ever since then when he realised the power of the EU to that it could be the, the way he could deploy the European institutions uh, in the service of populism. A few of the candidates for the Tory leadership talked about the possibility of proroguing Mm -hmm. Parliament. Mm. What does that say about the state of conservatism in the UK that, you know, an 
organisation which is conservative by nature is prepared to take what is essentially quite a radical move in order to get their way. So it's absolutely extraordinary that they could consider proroguing Parliament to push through Brexit in this way. And the way they have been able to do this, of course, is by using the referendum as a, they see it as a, the expression of the will of the people. And they keep on about this and this 52% win for leave in the referendum is, as far as they're concerned, a definitive instruction to deliver Brexit. And they have to cling to that because that's all they've got, really. Um, they have to keep pushing this line because it plays very well with a certain proportion of the British electorate that they're being cheated out of what they were promised. So what does it all this say about the state of the Conservative Party? I mean, obviously, they've lost a whole bunch of voters to the to the Brexit party. Has the Conservative Party lurched that far to the right that the the membership is comfortable with the idea of proroguing Parliament? The membership do not represent the entirety of Conservative voters. They are very, the membership are very male. They're very, pretty elderly or late middle-aged. They're fairly wealthy. They tend to live in the south of England. One of the reasons why Johnson won the leadership was because of a lot of entryism in the party, a lot of people who previously members of UKIP, um, the UK Independence Party, which has been around since the uh, early 90s in various forms, joined the Conservative Party specifically so that they could vote in the leadership election and get Boris Johnson. And that's one of the reasons why he triumphed. So they are not representative anymore. Having said that, they have, they and the Brexit Party between them have managed to pull public opinion towards the acceptability of no deal, which is the real thing that has changed. I mean, I I hold Theresa May partly responsible, at least for this, largely responsible, because she used to say no deal is better than a bad deal. And that was, you know, bollocks to use a (laughs) British expression. And but she said it quite early on. And it meant that it it normalised the idea of no deal. And also, of course, there's the idea that people think there's a game show in Britain that's been around for a while, and it involves someone saying deal or no deal. And if you go for no deal, nothing changes. And so that contributed to the idea that no deal meant stasis, and it doesn't, it means chaos. I mean, you talked about no deal essentially representing chaos there. Mm-hmm. Why aren't those types of messages getting through to uh, voters? Two reasons. One is cynicism. The immediate predictions for how bad things would get if we voted to leave the EU did not happen. Un- uh, unemployment in the UK is still low. We are getting into a recession, I think, now. But And, of course, the pound is tanking. But um, fundamentally, things are not that bad yet. And it's been three years since the vote. So people don't believe the doom-laden predictions, what was called Project Fear, what they dubbed Project Fear, that were made before the referendum by the Remain campaign. The other is actually, paradoxically, a yearning for chaos. People, I think, like the idea of something coming along and shaking up British society very profoundly. And it harks back to ideas about Britain in the Blitz, Britain in the Second World War, Britain triumphing against adversity, shortages, the joy of, you know, getting together and having a common enemy and a common cause. And 
the feeling that actually we're a pretty sophisticated society and nothing could affect us, uh, affect us that badly. It's rubbish, of course, because Britain in the 1940s is not Britain now. Britain in the 1940s did not have complicated supply chains of medicines and food and intimate relationship with the EU, not just in terms of trade, but in terms of people and the number of Europeans who live here and the number of um, British people who live in Europe. It's all so much more interlinked, but a lot of people don't see that because it's not taught in schools. It's not explained. We're very bad at talking about economics and how things work behind the scenes. What is it in the British political system that has encouraged that kind of um, desire? Well, historically, we've been a very stable democracy. We haven't been invaded for a very long time either. We haven't suffered the horrors of um, fascism or communism or extreme political philosophies. So I think people simply do not believe that things can actually get that bad. Also, a lot of nostalgia. British films, you all know, we all know the ones, you know, Britain's triumph against evil Nazis. The people who have driven Brexit are often quite elderly, but not elderly enough that they actually remember the war in any detail, but just that they remember a kind of myth about the war. So that means that they they, they thrive on a myth um, that Britain triumphs and Britain, and, and they don't remember the suffering, they only see the positive side of it. So talking of things that uh, don't work very well, let's turn to Jeremy Corbyn. (laughs) Um, Can Labour ever actually do that kind of full switch to remain or will we continue to see this kind of one step forward, two steps back from him in, in terms of his strategy around it? Jeremy Corbyn is a Brexiteer. He voted for for to leave the European community, as it then was, in 1975, and his opinions haven't really changed. He also sensed an opportunity because, of course, if there is a hard and damaging Brexit, the chances are the Conservatives will be voted out and Labour has a reasonable chance of... Um, getting into power. So Brexit has always been an opportunity and has been seen as such by the Labour Party. Very cynically, I think. And there is uh, there is no way, I think, that Labour could now go for Remain because people, I don't think, will believe them anymore. So Brexit has exposed some pretty serious fault lines in the UK. How do you go about, as a society, fixing those That's an extremely difficult question, which nobody can so satisfactorily answer. New identities have been created, leave identities, remain identities, quite unnecessarily, because there was no need to pursue a hard Brexit. There was never any need to pursue a hard Brexit. Had there been a soft Brexit um, where we stayed in the single market and the customs union, I don't think remain would have carried the idea of a remainder as an identity would have established itself because we would just kind of most of us would have just accepted it um, and said yeah okay well we can live with that but they pushed it and pushed it and they went for no deal and so people who lent vaguely towards Remain in the past have been radicalized and I think as one myself understandably so um, 
previously I may, took as a journalist I took great care not to support a particular party and I still don't support a particular party um, or a particular cause because I wanted to remain apart from that but it has been impossible to do so because things because we are going mad and we are being fed lies <laughs> all the time and it is going not entirely unchallenged but there is no shame at all in left left in british politics you tell a lie one day and you just shut hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Get off the next. And that's extremely difficult for many of us to live with. But the impulse towards leave and the impulse to get it done as if it is going to solve anything is very, very strong among a proportion of the British pop, uh, population now. And it's terrifying. I don't know how we can come together. There was a, there was a candidate for the Tory leadership, Roy Stewart, who I think saw this very well and despite his own reservations backed Brexit and backed a hard Brexit, backed Theresa May's deal um, and recognised that the divisions in British society were such that we needed to get a deal to do uh, for Brexit in order that we could possibly move on and heal those divisions and move a bit towards the centre. But inevitably, because he didn't promise the hardest of Brexits, because he said he ruled out no deal... Um, he didn't win the leadership. But I think the fact that he was appreciated by a lot of Remainers, even though he was not a Remainer himself, shows that there is an appetite for compromise in this country. It's just that we can't let it go. And I mean, Remainers in particular can't let it go because we see our country dissolving before our eyes and we're horrified and we can't let that happen. And the leavers on there for their part um, believe that they've been cheated out of what they voted for. Is there any path to healing those divisions? I mean, no, there is no path that um, to healing those divisions that happens when while Boris Johnson is in power. If he wins uh, a general election. There will still be a large proportion of the country. You can see this. Uh, he's booed, you know, so much way, as you've pointed out, where he goes, who loathe him. And he is far more divisive than even Margaret Thatcher was. And that was pretty divisive. There has to be someone strong enough coming out of the centre ground of politics. And maybe it will be in time Roy Stewart or maybe it will be someone else who is capable of uniting the country, a Tony Blair-like figure who we, most of us can get behind. And that is the personality that has been lacking. And I think that is to blame for a lot of the problems in British politics at the moment. There has been no leadership from the centre. 
So you've painted a pretty gloomy picture (laughs) for us, understandably gloomy picture (laughs) for us. Uh, And you've obviously got the sort of cliff edge coming up of Halloween, 31st of October. Um, What's your best guess about what the future looks like, what the next few months look like? Horrific. I can't see the EU, as I said, making any concessions to Boris Johnson. Therefore, he will either have to go for no deal and he will, Parliament will likely reject no deal. So that leads to a general election. If Parliament doesn't reject no deal, well, I, you know, I hate to think what would happen if that was the case. I would just be in despair (laughs) if we do go for it. If Parliament does reject no deal, then we have to have a general election, really. There's no other way forward. Uh, We can't really have one. I think the earliest date now is October the 24th to organise one. One week before. One week before. Now, presumably, Boris Johnson would get an extension from the EU in order that we could hold an election after that. There would be an incredibly divisive campaign. He would have to fight. He would have to fight on the platform of no deal. Otherwise, as I say, he would lose Brexit party. He would lose votes to the Brexit party. He has to neutralise that threat. There is a possibility that he could even do a pact with Nigel Farage, God forbid, the leader of the Brexit party. Um, It's always an incredible mistake to bring extremists and populists into the mainstream of politics, but he may regard that as the way forward. The only hope I have is that Remain can get its act together and can stand candidates, stand down candidates in constituencies in such a way that um, it will be possible for Remain candidates to get a majority, whether those Remain candidates are Lib Dems or Greens. But of course, since the Labour Party isn't a Remain party, we can't work with them, although they have promised a referendum now on whatever deal Boris Johnson might come back with, but that's fairly meaningless since he won't come back with a deal. There's also the problem of the Scottish National Party, which the big parties don't want to work with because the Scottish National Party is explicitly in favour of Scottish independence. I am also in favour of Scottish independence because I, I'm amazed that it's, uh, they're still with us at all, frankly. I think it's extraordinary that the country hasn't risen up and <laughs> got rid of us by now. Uh, but, uh, there is a strong instinct uh, for unionism still in the British, in the British Parliament. So, um, I don't know whether the parties could work with the SNP in that way. But the only hope really is a Remain alliance, or we are looking at either no deal on October 31st, um, or Boris Johnson pushing through no deal by virtue of winning a general election. Now, after that, then I have a bit more hope because it will be a disaster and we will have to go back begging to the EU for terms to get a deal. But it will take a lot longer and there will be an awful lot of suffering in the meantime. So things are likely to get much worse before they potentially get a a little bit better. And and just finally, hopefully trying to introduce just a note of positivity. (laughs) Sorry. We have seen seen a, a strong groundswell of support for Remain or Revoke. We saw this, the uh, signatures to Parliament, was it six million people signed that? Mm-hmm. We've seen these huge marches taking place in London. So there's obviously a, a groundswell of support 
for remain there. But do you get any sense that there are changing perspectives on the other side of politics, on the conservative side of politics? Are there some conservatives who look at this and go, we are heading towards a national fiasco here? Yes, there are. And clearly Roy Stewart, who I mentioned earlier, is one. There are others like Dominic Grieve and the other um, ministers who left the government when Boris Johnson took over because they weren't able to serve under him because he was threatening no deal. The trouble is, of course, that now their moderating influence has been lost because they're no longer in cabinet or in the government. And so he has assembled a cabinet around him who are extremists, unfortunately. So there is a hardcore of about 10 conservatives who are, <laughs> who are, um, fairly reasonable individuals. And, um, the problem is, of course, that their constituencies are very keen to deselect them and wanted to get rid of them in favour of more Brexit-friendly people. So they are fighting for their political survival as well. I think it's hard, it's very hard to predict, but I don't know if the Conservative Party can survive in its current form. I don't know if Labour can survive in its current form. I think we need to stop being so sentimental about the Labour Party and the Conservative Party and recognise that they are not fit for purpose. Thank you so much for helping us unpick this uh, conundrum for Democracy Sausage. And on behalf of all the listeners, uh, we wish you the absolute best of luck. (laughs) We need it. (laughs) Thanks, Ruth. Thank you. Well, Martin, that was an absolutely fascinating uh, interview, of course, dealing with a, an issue that's just completely consumed British politics and uh, really, um, you know, rendered people in, in, in the British political class with, uh, you know, an inability to deal with just about anything else. I thought it was fascinating, uh, right at the top of the interview, she talked about, um, I mean, obviously it's not, you know, there's no illusion about where she stands or where anyone on the Romaniacs uh, podcast stands on this issue. Um, but it was interesting that she characterised uh, Brexit as as having lessons for for you know not just for Britain but for us generally in democracies. She said it was uh, a case of where public opinion had been manipulated by a very small clique. Uh, you know, in this case, a very conservative clique, and people like uh, Nigel Farage, obviously from UKIP, uh, uh, and now the Brexit Party uh, key players, who in fact has been in Australia uh, trying to influence public opinion this week. Yeah, that's right. And that uh, ultra-conservative conference that's been uh, happening in Australia over the weekend. And uh, that's that's attracted a fair bit of criticism of well, as well. Uh, some prominent News Corp uh, figures uh, uh, appeared at that. And um, as you say, Nigel Farage and, and some other, you know, fairly hardline right figures. And that's I suppose the um, one of the fears here that, uh, you know, you would have thought that the Brexit position was – uh, a minority position in the UK not so many years ago. Um, very few people expected it to get up when that referendum did happen. 
but it but it did get up, and uh, we've seen the debacle going on since. Well, I think it's not just that the you know the Brexit position was a, a minority position. Essentially, what's happened over the last few years in the UK is politics has been absolutely consumed by Brexit. It doesn't appear to be that anything else substantial has mm. actually happened. But more more than that, the politics around it at the moment has shifted towards no-deal Brexit, i.e. the UK coming crashing out of the EU on the 31st of October, on Halloween, as being the kind of default position for those in favour of Brexit. Now, that is an extremely... Um, bad. Yeah, bad and and radical position uh, to adopt. Yeah, well, it is. It's, it's astounding when you think about it. Um, but... I noticed you, you used that terminology there, and I think it was used in the interview as well. This shift to the right, but is are we talking about a shift, a substantive shift to the right in the polity, or are we just talking about a tactical sort of last resort shift on the right to a no deal position? Because effectively, no other option is open to them. They are committed to leaving the European Union, uh, and the Parliament has blocked any sort of deal that has been put forward leaving the only possibility for withdrawal being that no-deal kind of cliff that, as you say, is coming up on the 31st. So we're we talking about something that's happening across the polity. Is there growing public support for the inevitability of no-deal or is there just, as I say, a sort of a tactical resort to it on the right? I think it's a bit of both, to be honest, Mark. I mean, we've got to keep in mind that a no-deal Brexit is the legal default. So unless they can agree something else, whether it's an extension with the EU or whether it's a, uh, a changes to the uh, uh, withdrawal agreement, then the UK is leaving the EU on the 31st of October with no deal. Now, I I think that, yes, there is certainly some tactical kind of shift to that position from the right. Um, and which there, Johnson kind of led in a way, didn't which he? Johnson's right through that leadership uh, contest, he was making it pretty clear that uh, you know no deal. If no deal was away, no deal was away, and he was even flagging, as you were mentioning in the interview, the, the, the notion of proroguing Parliament so that it could happen without having to go through Parliament. Yeah, and he certainly wasn't alone in that regard. And uh, An extraordinary I, I, position for the Conservatives to take, though. I mean, what does Conservative mean if it doesn't involve upholding the bedrock institutions of? Of the society, of the community. I, I guess that's actually what we're seeing. We're, we're seeing um, the creation of new institutional rules and norms, which is, I guess, one of the one of the glorious things about the, the British constitution. It's not written down. So it's open to change and it's open to dealing with these kinds of shocks. But we are literally seeing how messy, uncomfortable and harrowing developing these norms actually is because this is like a slow moving train wreck that's mm. been going now for several years it's consumed this is the third prime minister you know yeah. that we've had uh, on this on this uh, in this era without really going anywhere just just yeah. back on the question of uh, this sort of sentiment issue about towards a no deal i've seen surveys that suggest and people on the remain side suggesting that Support for remaining in Europe is 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 up in the sixty low sixty percent range now. Now I don't know how reliable those things are, and I don't know how reliable polls are generally, and particularly in cases where you don't have compulsory voting, and that was one of the problems with predicting the outcome before. But so, what do you think of that? Is there is there is is it possible that the two things are both happening? That across the community, there's more support for staying if the only deal is. Is a no deal. Yes, I, look, I, I certainly think that 
I think you need to recognise the fact that there are a substantial number of voters in the UK who genuinely want to leave the European Union and are happy to do it without a deal. Mm. You know, hence the support, uh, the rising support for the Brexit party and kind of hence the position that Boris Johnson has adopted. But what I did find was while I was there, essentially all, I mean, I was there to take part in an organized kind of cycle race, Ride London. It was a fantastic experience. You know, I was out there sort of riding the roads, but conversationally, all roads led to Brexit. It doesn't matter mm. who I was talking to or where that conversation yeah. started. Eventually, it would end up at Brexit. And I had a lot of conversations with people who voted to leave in the first referendum and their position had hardened based on the fact that it hadn't happened yet. But I also had a lot of conversations with people who voted to leave in the referendum who had now shifted their position because you know, a lot of these because were... Because it's been such a debacle. Because it's been yeah. such and a plus debacle. And plus we can now see the actual details. I mean, this is something I've argued for a long time that the referendum was really just an in-principle question. I mean, it was it's never been considered as that, but it couldn't have been more because no one really knew what it meant to leave. I mean, the question was, do you want to remain in or do you want to, you know, do you want to leave Europe or do you want to remain? And more people turned out and voted for leave but since then, a whole lot more detail has been established about what that would cost the economy, what it actually means, what it's going to do. So, you know, it makes sense to actually, you know. It's kind of amazing, though, how many people again. just want to, quote, unquote, get it done, right? Um, yeah. Like they don't really, you know, that for, for, for a segment of voters, they don't really care what the consequences are. They just want it over with so they can move on to the next um, set of of issues which um, we, we can talk about in a second, but I mean, I think I think unfortunately, what's sort of happened in UK politics is you've sort of seen a, um, a hardening of of attitudes, right? Uh, to to a point where for a lot of people who voted to leave and want to leave, that it's it's no longer a question about European sovereign, uh, British sovereignty, its role in the EU, its relationship with the EU or the economy. It's now like a, a question of identity politics. Yeah. You know, I'm a leaver. Um, you know, we won World War II and showed British pluck and spirit. We had a once great empire. Why won't you stand up, politicians and MPs, and deliver this thing that you promised to do? And that is hard to argue against. It's a pretty legitimate question. I mean, given that they were so clear and unequivocal about it at the time. Yeah. You know, we will, you, you voted to leave, we will deliver it. And the parliament, the political class has proved itself singularly incapable of acting in any sort of singular way. It's been hopelessly riven uh, ever since. Well, this is, um, sorry, so, sorry. No, you go on. Uh, well, this is a perfect example of why you should not introduce these types of citizen-initiated referenda, right? Or, 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 you know, to get on my hobby horse, like why claiming a mandate from an election result for every single thing that may have been on the agenda is perhaps a bit spurious. Like these questions but cannot, be no, cannot sorry, bear. There's no, there's no question of mandate here. I mean the mandate was – whether we agree with it or not, the mandate was pretty clear. It was a simple question. It was put – yeah, yeah. I think I think I think that's that's true. Leave. And turnout was higher for this road, so that that I don't disagree with, right? But there's a difference between leaving the EU and the specific undertakings under which people choose to leave the EU. Yeah. And I think I think that is important. And I think that's one of the reasons why this has been such a. Uh, Oh, you won't use that word. A disaster. Um, An omni shambles. Omni. Yeah. Oh, I like that. A omni cluster shambles. Disaster. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's another word for that. <laughs> yeah. That's the one I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, well, I, it was sort of a rightism that I was trying to avoid uh, yeah, latching dear. into there. I mean, Ros in the interview was quite pessimistic about uh, the messages getting through to uh, UK voters about the consequences of no deal. Mm. But we're seeing increasing signs that actually some of that message is some of those messages are getting through. I mean, whilst I was there, the government committed £2.1 billion extra on no deal planning, which included a huge public information uh, campaign about it. And there was some research out today that suggests Britons have spent four billion pounds stockpiling goods so that they're prepared with, you know, kind of yeah. food and medicines and drink uh, for uh, when uh, no deal happens. And keep in mind, this is a country that had civil unrest when KFC ran out of chicken. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, they know their priorities. That's right. Uh, so what we've got sellers a bit like doomsday preppers. We've got sellers full of spam and… and <laughs> full of gammon. Gammon. Yeah, yeah. Gammon. You know, this gammon question is quite interesting. It's a bit of a, uh, a uh, pejorative term that is used to describe what mad, angry blokes on the right of politics who are sort of… Generally yelling. kind of red, ruddy face, getting very angry about… Everything. Yeah, and gammon, which I must say it's a t- term with which I'm only recently familiar, uh, is um, what a, a kind of um, thickly sliced ham. It's like it? a ham steak. In Australia, you call it a ham steak, I think. But they're slightly larger, you know, generally served with a fried egg on top. It's actually kind of delicious. So it's, it? a, bit, it's a little bit sad that I, this I, I, delicious I meat product has been associated with uh, these types of figures. Yeah, I don't dig on swine myself, so. But speaking of <laughs> supply chains, we have a question from – a uh, friend of the show and longtime listener, Mark Zanker, uh, who has asked us, uh, you know, that it looks likely that there'll be a hard breakfast, a uh, Brexit, sorry. A hard breakfast. Now, that's it's something the, It's the gammon. Today. It's on the brain. Oh, I'm now thinking breakfast. about eggs. Um, <laughs> basically eggs about a hard Brexit at the end of October. And he sort of asks, you know, there'll be no regulatory f- framework for data protection, aviation safety, pharmaceuticals, mutual recognition of qualifications and their standards, food safety, import and export inspection, all the movement of people. How do we think that these issues will be resolved? Now, you already sort of spoke a bit about the um, Department for Brexit, right, being given even more money. But there's also been reports that there's been enormous amounts of turnover in this department uh, as this sort of crisis has been um, ongoing. Um, You know, you were recently there. Are people talking about this stuff now more and more? And what is the potential solutions, if any? Yeah, well, I certainly don't know what the solutions are. <laughs> I, 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 tried to, I tried to find them while I was there. But well, some companies have been voting with their feet, haven't they? I mean, companies have actually been moving their operations to the continent now for some time uh, to to get around this problem. Yeah, of pat- being... particularly in the financial sector, I think. Yeah, but that, some manufacturing as well, as I understand it. Yeah, that's certainly been an issue. I mean, one, one thing that did come across to me quite strongly whilst I was there was people recognised the fact that a lot of essential services in the UK are staffed by European nationals. So there was some concern that, you know, what happens uh, in the event of a no-deal Brexit to those European nationals? Will there be enough people to staff the NHS? While I was there, Boris Johnson announced that it was going to be 20,000 extra police on the streets. Mm. You wonder where those those people are actually going to come from. No shortage of money yet at the moment. For, yes, um, yeah, there's, the magic money tree has, uh, has is really producing the good 
goods in the UK. It's at the a moment. good thing the pound's performing so well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, what a joke! I mean, really, seriously. Not only do we have conservatives absolutely shredding the, these, uh, you know, traditions and institutions that have, uh, you know, been the bedrock of of British society of the of the, of the Commonwealth for so long. Uh, but we now have a, this idea that uh, the, the budget doesn't count at all, that uh, this is a, essentially a political quagmire that is being funded now out of, uh, out of, by the taxpayer to sort of uh, dig, dig the political class out of its own division and, yeah. and uh, dysfunction. £6.3 billion that they've spent on no-deal planning. Now, keep in mind, this is a country that has just been through a decade of austerity in, mm. uh, uh, in the wake of the, of the GFC. And in fact, on our other podcast on Policy Forum Pod, we did an interview with Philip Alston recently, the UN Special Rapporteur on uh, extreme poverty. And he talked about the effects of, uh, of austerity in the UK. So you wonder where the hell this money is coming from. You do. You do. I mean, it's... What I thought was really interesting about what Roz said was was right at the end where she sort of said that the you know we might have to recognise that the we might not have, we have, might have to start stop being sentimental about the political parties right that they are no yes. longer fit for purpose and um, I do remember the last time I was there which was in sort of March April I was discussing with some political scientists that I know there um, about the fact that you know, the situation has become so unpredictable and the fact that uh, Brexit is an issue that splits all the parties that we are actually potentially looking at the classic situation for a party realignment. And, you know, as... um, as this crisis sort of moves ever closer towards a cliff where it seems like an election might be the only kind of um, sort of... We might be seeing an election um, and we're sort of seeing organisation amongst several parties on the sort of Remain side to try to coordinate to be a block and you're seeing um, Boris Johnson cuddle up to the Brexit party to try to stop those voters from splitting off, you do sort of wonder, and Labor in the middle who sort of is no longer credible as a Remain force at all because of Jeremy Corbyn and that party is divided as well, you kind of wonder like, what is going to be the end result of this? And it's, you know, potentially likely that not every single party actor that existed before this crisis will exist after this crisis or perhaps not under the same label or perhaps not in the same way. So this is already a huge kind of question, but this crisis is probably something that people will be studying in 200 years' time when they study questions all about the British constitution. Yeah, no, it's a very good point, uh, particularly when you, you – because on the other side, yeah, in terms of uh, not just the, the, the passing out of, of some polit- longstanding political parties, you look at the Brexit party, for example, it's come effectively from nowhere, I mean, effectively out of UKIP, I guess, but um, has, has you know, fielded candidates and, and, and uh, shown some uh, considerable uh, electoral bite uh, you know, quite quickly. So, and as Roz made the point with the first past the post voting system, it's a, it's a potentially quite volatile system that has been largely uh, held stable by these long run, long standing major political parties. But it all feels like it's breaking down. If it, if it does, this is an interesting question. If it does sort of break down into this situation of um, the parties that are for remain attempting to coordinate together and the parties that are for leave. Is there a danger that the UK itself becomes, you know, kind of generationally cleaved and, and also geographically yeah, cleaved in a much stronger... Well, it has, but, it, but I mean, like, it's almost like the parties at the moment, 
ineffective though they might be, are some sort of band-aids over these big divisions. But, you know, if if they split completely, I mean, it, it's a kind of a winner-take-all electoral system. Absolutely. That's the trouble with it. Well, I mean, I think it's easier for the Tories and Brexit to coordinate than it is for the Remain because they're, dis- they're distributed off so many different parties. Mm. Um so I think that's a real coordination challenge for them just because there's so many more different actors. And, I th- I th- you know, it's just sort of baffling to look at this situation. I mean, I said the British constitution just before, but it might, in 200 years, we might be referring to the English constitution because I think uh, support for leaving the union in Scotland has now passed over the 50% threshold. It was the last poll out was at 52%. So, and this, this is the perfect opportunity for Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP to, to push for another referendum and their votes uh, might really kind of matter in a sort of situation where they're going to force the, uh, the government to an election or, or to block something in this sort of hung parliament situation that the government is in. Yeah. Martin, what's your, uh, just we need to wrap this up, I guess, but what's your uh, sort of guess about um, something that Rose Taylor talked about there, the idea of a um, a moderate candidate, a sort of a Tony Blair-like figure somehow emerging, perhaps not immediately, but sometime in the foreseeable future to speak to the common sense and to reunite reunite the, the the nation is is it i mean she mentioned rory stewart on the on the uh, conservative side um is it a, a a tom watson type figure you know does anyone spring to mind uh, well i i i no one springs to mind i i think i think that's part of the problem and i think that even if they did emerge as a kind of centrist figure, I'm just not sure that they can get the traction in the mm. UK at the moment. In, um, I mean, we saw recently in the lead up to the uh, European Union elections that were held in the UK, there was the formation of Change UK, which drew some politicians from both uh, the Labour Party and from the Conservatives. They really didn't do very well and it's because the whole political bait is so polarised for Brexit or uh, against Brexit, that those kind of centrist candidates really aren't just kind of cutting through. So I, I feel somewhat pessimistic that um, such a figure could emerge, and I'm not sure who that figure would be. It doesn't feel like uh, the times are right for centrist candidates, does it? I mean, when you look in, in, in the US, you look here, you look in, in – um, in the UK, obviously, looking at many other countries, uh, it's it's extreme candidates, candidates with strong market positions, effectively, who are speaking to voters, people who appear to be speaking for the status quo, for the institutional norms and so forth. They look like weak candidates to to uh, disgruntled voters. And uh, so it feels like it's not the right time, even though that may be exactly what is needed. Yeah, I agree with that. But, um, you know, on a slightly more positive note, I mean, I think there are signs that those people on the Remain side are a little more willing now to work together. We saw that in a by-election whilst I was there. Uh, In fact, this morning, Caroline Lucas, the Greens leader in the UK, uh, proposed a cabinet of national unity made up entirely of 10 high-profile female politicians. So those conversations are happening. Gammons won't like that. (laughs) Gammons definitely will not like that. (laughs) But those conversations are happening about how you bring those uh, Remain parties 
these together. Um, I guess the question is, even if they were successful, what's left in the aftermath and how do you go about repairing that? Yeah, it's a it's a period of it's a pro radical period. It feels like, doesn't it, Maria? Yes, absolutely. And so once again, you know, participate. Write to your local MP. Show up to things. Exactly, and indeed, write to us at uh, Apps Policy Forum. You can get to us through Facebook on Policy Forum Pod, and the email is podcast at policyforum dot net. Um, Martin Pierce, uh, been a great pleasure to have you on here, doing uh, the the frontline duties and. Uh, uh, organising that interview, which was uh, really excellent. It's been very nice to be on this side of the microphone for once. And can I once again... Well, we'll have to have you back. You're always welcome, of course. Well, thanks, Mark. But can I once again thank Roz for her time? I was really grateful that she was able to take the time to do that. And she welcomed me into her house. She made me a nice cup of tea. It was a very British experience, even (laughs) though she was clearly very gloomy about the state of, uh, of of the country. Thanks, Roz. And thank you to you, Maria, and uh, thank you, listeners, for being with us again, and we'll talk to you again next week on Democracy Sausage. Bye for now. Bye.